The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Venstaden, in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, last week, if you recall, we spoke with Anath Krishnan about China India relations. That was an absolutely fascinating discussion. And folks, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that show, I highly recommend that you go back and take a listen to it in part because it will inform a little bit about our conversation today talking about China-Pakistan relations. And again, just as the relationship between China and India is very complex, very multifaceted, we even said it was a little bit like a Rorschach test. I think we can say the same thing about what's happening in Pakistan right now. And the Pakistani-China relationship burst into the news last week or maybe 10 days ago when Pakistani Foreign Minister uh, Bilalwal Bhutto Zadari was recently in Washington and he met with his U.S. counterpart, Antony Blinken. And there was a little bit of an awkward interaction between the two because apparently Blinken called on uh, Bhutto Zardari to talk to the Chinese about the debt issue. Let me just quote you what Blinken said. He said that I also urged our colleagues in Pakistan to engage China on some of the important issues of debt relief and restructure so that Pakistan can more re- quickly recover from the floods. The floods, of course, that he's referring to are these massive floods. And I think, Cobus, it's covered almost a third of the country. I mean, just something ridiculous. It's a just of unprecedented proportions. This is a human tragedy that is beyond description right now. And Pakistan, who already had a number of problems on social and economic development, did not need this. But it really shows you about the impact that climate change is having on developing countries. But the Pakistani foreign minister did not apparently take kindly to the secretary's suggestion. In an interview published last week with the Nikkei Asia newspaper, he said, and let me quote this to you, maybe we've talked about debt deferments, but we haven't asked the U.S. or anybody about restructuring. He went on to say, obviously, when you do development at the scale we're doing with the Chinese, there is debt. And I'd really like to ask countries like the U.S. how much of their debt is due to China. It's the way of the world. Snap, Cobus. <laughs> I mean, that is, I mean, it's true. I mean, the U.S. has an enormous amount of debt. And by the way, our debt is now crossing $31 trillion. $31 trillion. I mean, can you believe that? It's just mind-numbing. So, again, I think to his point... Maybe the U.S. isn't in the best position to be talking to others about debt, but apparently Blinken thinks he is, and he's apparently concerned about the estimated $30 billion that Pakistan owes China, which puts the Pakistanis on the list of the most highly indebted countries to the Chinese. And given the global uncertainties and where we are in the world, on top of the flooding, of course, um, there's a lot of concern in places like the IMF, the World Bank, and elsewhere that... Pakistan may not be in a strong position to service some of those loans. We're going to find out a little bit about that from our guest today. A lot of that money has gone into building something called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, known for short as CPEC. This is a massive infrastructure project that even predates the Belt and Road Initiative, valued somewhere in the range of 40 to 60 billion dollars. CPEC is just a massive network of ports, highways, power stations, logistics that effectively link China and Pakistan together and provide the Chinese with a major maritime gateway in Gwadar, which is on the Gulf of Oman. If you are not familiar with where this is, go to Google Maps right now, press pause on the show, go to Google Maps, and what you're going to find out is that Gwadar is right there close to the major maritime energy sea lanes in the Persian Gulf. And it also provides China with overland access 
from Africa via the Indian Ocean. So that is, ships are coming out of the port of Mombasa, they cross the Indian Ocean, they land in the port of Gwadar, and then from there, if CPEC lives up to its potential, things can make it overland into China. So that, again, very, very important. Now, the problem is, is that CPEC is being built in an area that's opposed by separatist militant groups like the Baluchistan Liberation Army that has recently stepped up attacks against the Chinese. And the idea here is that the BLA is trying to attack the Chinese as a way to discourage them from building the CPEC, but their real frustrations with the Pakistani government. And so there have been a series of just horrific terrorist attacks against Chinese nationals this past year. If you recall, a few months ago, outside of the Confucius Institute at Karachi University, three Chinese teachers were killed. And just these were just absolutely innocent people. There's, you know, they showed videos of the young Chinese teachers, and they were... It was just heartbreaking to see what what they had to go through. There was another attack just last week, and it wasn't directly attributed to the BLA, but I think that they later did claim responsibility at a dental clinic in Karachi, where a gentleman walked in and posed as a patient and then shot the uh, three Chinese owners and workers at that dental clinic. Those were Pakistani nationals of Chinese ethnicity, just to be clear. There was some confusion of that in the coverage. But Cobus, it does not appear that the attacks by the BLA are going to derail CPEC, which is the intent of the BLA. And as of now, it also doesn't look like there are any major cracks in the Sino-Pakistani relationship. Yeah, you know the 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 relationship is is also you know drew a lot of a lot of strength from from wider geopolitical shifts. No, you know uh, particularly the 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 slow kind of move from India closer to the United States, and at the same time it also it also kind of cements these these really old relationships that China has throughout throughout the global South. You know, with Pakistan being you know being a, a, a notable partner. So you know the the as you mentioned, the, the CPEC development is, is 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 really key, you know, kind of for South Asia and 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 for China-Pakistan relations. But but it's also as uh, it's also this kind of part of this wider corridor that that that's maybe the, one of the clearest expressions of the Belt and Road Initiative, spatially at least. You know, so so for example, the the peace cable um, that we mentioned before, it's an undersea internet cable, and that piece is is short for Pakistan East Africa connecting to Europe. So it it runs from CPEC under the sea to Kenya down to South Africa and up to Europe and um you know so 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 that that's just one expression of the kind of global the, the global rollout that, that that to a large extent starts in Pakistan or starts in Pakistan China relations well let's get a perspective on this and really I'm just so excited to talk to Amar Malik who is a senior research scientist at Aid Data where he leads the Chinese Development Finance Program and he's also a leading specialist on China-Pakistan relations. Uh, Aid Data for those of you who are not familiar is the invaluable research outfit at the College of William and Mary in the US that provides by far some of the most authoritative research on Chinese development finance. We've had uh, several folks from Aid Data on our shows in the past, and we are thrilled to have Amar on the show for the first time. A very good morning to you, Amar. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to speak with you. This is, of course, one of China's most consequential relationships in the world. Uh, they call themselves all-weather friends. That is something that they call to their best friends. But at the same time, the Pakistani foreign minister was in Washington, and he does seem like he's trying to do a reset with the Americans, who've had strained relations with the Pakistanis dating back to the 9-11 uh, you know, era. And at the same time, China has, you know, a lot of debts and outstanding problems also with the Pakistanis. As much as they like to say they're all-weather friends, this is a complex relationship. Can you help us understand, just as we embark on our conversation today, where are we right now in the China-Pakistan relationship as it's also trying to reorient its ties with the U.S.? Thank you very much. This is a this is a very big question, as you can imagine. Yes, you're right that the Pakistanis are trying to reset their relationship with the United States because back in April, when we had a change of government in Pakistan, uh, the the then Pakistani Prime Minister came up with essentially a conspiracy theory saying that the Americans were involved in quote-unquote regime change. So I think this new administration, the Pakistani army, which has a big role to play in all of this, 
they're trying to reset relations. The Pakistani chief of army staff is in Washington right now, and he's apparently getting some sort of a medal from Lloyd Austin uh, in, at the Pentagon today. So I think those uh, relations are being reset. But if I was to step back a little bit and think about the CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, we're in a weird place right now because uh, the original plan of the CPEC was a three-stage long-term vision, where the first stage was laying the infrastructure, uh, solving the basic problems of power and highways and connectivity that any developing country faces. The second stage would be, you know, bank banking on that initial foundation. There will be a lot of FDI, foreign direct investments. Uh, there will be special economic zones and Chinese uh, private sector manufacturing would start to relocate to Pakistan. And of course, the third phase would be longer term prosperity. We were supposed to move from phase one to phase two uh, in 2020. But the reality is that that really hasn't happened yet. Um, the special economic zones are still in the works. Uh, Pakistan has, uh, of course, suffered from COVID as have other countries. So that is to be blamed for that too. But this has been a year of immense political uncertainty. And if you think, know anything about the Chinese and the way they work, think about long-term commitments, I think uncertainty is not good for them. So there, there's been no real movement on any big-ticket commitments in the last couple of years. And the previous government of Prime Minister Imran Khan from 2000. 18 to 2022, um, there were a lot of conversations in the media about uh, CPEC slowing down, CPEC coming to a pause, um, things not going too well. And the other thing that is really strange here that is happening in Pakistan is that the institutional setup on the Pakistani side is uh, changing. So back when CPEC started under the government of Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, they set up a cell in the planning ministry and said that they are the natural counterpart to the NDRC. When the new government came in 2018, they decided to create a CPEC authority. There were some legal issues with that, but they did appoint a retired military general to run it and then a businessman to run it. The, the Sharif family is back in power and they have scrapped the authority and they said, we are going to go back to the original model. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now, um, institutional changes, uh, no big ticket commitments. But at the same time, like every new government in Pakistan, there is a push in this new government to um, try to get some of these projects back on track. And there's now talk of the Pakistani prime minister traveling to Beijing, asking for emergency lending, but also asking for uh, new projects. So Foreign Minister um, Bhutto Zardari, you know, in, in that same interview, he um, he essentially said that they that they don't know uh, where they are where they're standing, you know, with with the debt restructuring situation at the moment because they're still waiting for the for the final kind of assessment of what the actual flood damage was. So I was wondering, um, you know, as Eric mentioned, the flood is you know is really hot, like end end of days kind of level, you know, it's really crazy, um, and um, and the. You know, I've I've seen you know different kind of estimates of 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 the of the damage in, in the tens of billions of dollars. So I was wondering, you know, to to your mind, kind of where does where do where do the floods leave us, and particularly where where do the floods leave the 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 CPEC um, economic corridor? The floods are obviously um, a major event. The losses by the Pakistani government initial estimates are upwards of $30 billion. Um, the US and China have both committed about $56 million each. So it's not really much. The Pakistanis will push for quote-unquote climate reparations. COP27 is coming up. So the conversation is ongoing. And you're right that the full extent of the damage isn't really clear. But it is obvious that you know dozens and dozens of pieces of infrastructure have been destroyed. I'm talking about bridges that they thought would be tall enough to withstand floods have been destroyed because this flood event was much larger than any previous flood events. A lot of highways, including many that were part of CPEC, were washed away. So I think the Pakistanis will require uh, some debt relief or whatever relief they can get and some investments to get the infrastructure back on track. This is still early days. And I think there is also talk of agricultural impacts and food security implications because uh, in Pakistan, uh, wheat is the, the main crop uh, and they don't think they have enough time between now and the sowing season in November to clean out all the debris that has been brought in by the flood. So the situation, as you said, is, is ongoing. But uh, as far as US and China are concerned, I think it's a rare, very interesting situation where you know, late September, as you mentioned, Eric, the um, after the statement from Tony Blinken, the Chinese shot back immediately and said, you need to do something more, quote unquote, real and beneficial for the people of Pakistan. In other words, I think what they're saying is, we've been funding hardware, you've been doing like 
soft stuff like uh, policy support and women's empowerment and climate change support, things like that. So I think this is a rare situation for the Pakistanis to find themselves in where uh, the two biggest powers in the world are trading barbs at each other for not doing enough uh, on Pakistan. Um, the Americans have announced a, a debt suspension uh, on $132 million worth of debt, which I think it's going to be a drop in the bucket, even if the payments are suspended. But so far, no big uh, conversations around some of the biggest uh, ticket items in terms of debt rescheduling or relief of any sort from the Chinese. Okay, well, let's get a sense of what the debt situation is in Pakistan. You, you're you at A-Data, so you're on the front lines of all the best information about this. How much, as far as you know, does Pakistan owe China in terms of its debts? If media reports are to be believed, Eric, Pakistanis owe about 30 billion uh, of debt to China, and that's a third, less than a third of the total outstanding debt. So when A-Data released uh, our report last year, banking on uh, the Belt and Road, um, and Dawn newspaper, which is the uh, you know top Pakistani newspaper, ran an editorial about the lack of transparency. The Pakistani uh, minister at that time, the planning minister came and did a half, half an hour press conference. And he basically said at that time that only a fourth of our debt is owed to China. Um, why are we picking China, whereas 75% of the debt is domestic or Western, uh, multilateral and others? So, I mean, I think they have a they have a point, but um, the point of the media at that time was, you know, there needs to be more transparency around some of these deals. Because right now in the conversations, Pakistan is increasingly being included in the list of countries that is facing debt distress, if not a, an outright debt crisis, in part because of the floods, but also just the huge amount of loans and where we are with the cost of food, the cost of fuel, everything is going up. Interest rates are also going up in the West, making it difficult for the currencies in South Asia. So with all of that in mind, do you think it's appropriate to be concerned about Pakistan's debt, both to the Chinese and to other creditors? If you had asked this question three months ago, uh, the situation was a little bit more uncertain. Uh, the Pakistani rupee was basically in free fall. Uh, it has stabilized because the IMF came forward and it is now uh, the, the IMF program is back on track. Basically, what happened is back in April when um, there was a political crisis and a vote of no confidence against the previous government, they uh, not only stopped increasing fuel prices as world fuel prices were uh, go uh, going up, they actually started to cut it. And so the, there was a massive gap between what the government was paying externally for fuel and what they were getting as revenue. So that huge fuel subsidy really increased Pakistan's debt burdens uh, significantly. But this new government since since April has put the IMF program back on track. Uh, there's been short-term uh, lending and support from Arab countries, from China as well. And so I think the immediate crisis has been averted. But the fundamental issue in the Pakistani economic system um, remains, uh, which is the lack of productivity, low labor force participation, particularly from women. And basically, Pakistan is a chronic patient that keeps going back to the IMF. I think they've gone to the IMF like more than two dozen times or something. It's, it's crazy. They're always in an IMF program. So I think those fundamental issues of the economy have not been resolved. The vision of the CPAC, of course, was to, as I said in the first phase, was to solve the energy prices and uh, crisis in Pakistan, give energy, cheap, affordable energy to the industry and provide better connectivity so that there would be exports and the Pakistani economy could be more productive. But um, what has happened is that despite a lot of investment in these areas, uh, I think that uh, under CPAC, more than 5,300 megawatts of power will, were added. Um, there's about seven or 8,000 megawatts underway in terms of construction. There's been like hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of highways being built. Uh, I don't think that any of that has translated into tangible economic benefits as far as competitiveness of the economy is concerned. And therein lies the real long-term challenge that Pakistan faces. One of the big sectors in which Chinese companies are very active is, is in electricity, as you mentioned. And, you know, so the IMF... In in all of this, all of this kind of like discussion around around their program, they were warning that that um, like Chinese investments overall, like repaying Chinese loans overall, um, could be shave could shave off zero point four percent of Pakistan's GDP per year in in, in the future, um, and you know. And, and Pakistan recently also agreed to pay about 50 billion, 50 billion rupees, um, you know, to Chinese power producers, essentially, you know, kind of to, to avoid 
default on, you know, and, and, to, and to keep the power on. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of these of these Chinese independent power producers in, in Pakistan and like what, what are some of the factors that are involved in their presence and in, in the kind of the kind of financial implications of, of their, their operations there? Yeah, thank you. This is a very important question. So when you look at the the scale of Chinese in, uh, involvement in Pakistan, according to Aetera's estimates, um, China has committed over $34 billion in projects from 2000 to 2017. Uh, 58% of that, around $20 billion, is just in the energy sector. And most of this is in power production. Pakistan had put in place an IPP, or Independent Power Producer, policy in the 1990s. A lot of private investment came back then. At that time, it was mostly Western investment. And the Pakistanis basically went to China uh, when CPEC was announced around 2013, when there was a new government in Pakistan and said, we are facing a terrible power crisis. Eight to 12 hours of uh, power outages was the norm in Pakistan at the time. And they said, we need this problem solved. So China came through in a big way. And I think by 2017, they had added so much production capacity that we did not see as much as much of uh, pow- the power outages that had become a big problem in Pakistan. So wh- while they did ramp up production quite dramatically, uh, by their own admission, the Pakistani side failed to do solid energy reforms. So the energy sector is not just about production. It also involves transmission and distribution and payment collection and all that. And unfortunately, that the system of power... Um, distributors and sellers is incredibly inefficient. There's lots of line losses, uh, power theft is really big, and there are entrenched political interests involved in those companies that, that get that product produced power to the to the Pakistani people. And the government just simply failed to do that. What they did was they, they patchwork and just bolstered uh, supply of electricity to the extent that it would mask these underlying issues. Now, the problem with this, the deal structures is that the uh, government of Pakistan has guaranteed dollars a rate of return anywhere from 24 to upwards of 30%. So a typical energy deal would be, let's say if it's a billion dollars, 20% would be an equity that would come from the Pakistani government side, or the Pakistanis would create a consortium of local banks to put equity. Those equity providing local banks or financiers would be guaranteed 34%, up to 34% guaranteed rates of return. The Chinese investments investors would be coming in with about 80% as debt. They would also be guaranteed a, a pretty high rate of return. Um, now, all of those loans um, are over their grace periods. Uh, electricity is being produced and is being sold to the people of Pakistan. But the problem is that the government of Pakistan is the sole buyer of all power in the country is obligated to sell electricity to the people of Pakistan in rupees, whereas the repayments that they're obligated to make are in dollars and they're guaranteed. So when the Pakistani rupee lost its value, I think it lost 40% in just the last um, year or so. Um, the As you can imagine, the gap, gap between receivables and payables has ballooned. And that's where some of those concerns came in that you were talking about, uh, Kobus, when in some cases, the Chinese producer said, look, we haven't been paid in months and we'll have to shut down our operations if you don't make us liquid. So in Pakistan, these are called uh, sometimes capacity payments. Sometimes they're called a circular debt issue. This has been going on for years and years. And in fact, it predates the coming of uh, CPEC. So I, here again, I think the, the pattern is the same. The fundamental problem lies in the structure of Pakistan's energy system. And I think that needs to be solved first and foremost. But just to be clear here, and again, it's so fortunate that we're talking to someone from aid data on this, the nature of the loans in terms of the currency differences that you talk about in terms of generating currency in your local currency and repaying in dollars, that's not unique to Pakistan. That's a a feature of all Chinese loan contracts around the world, correct? Yes, I think that is true. Whenever there is an IPP system in place, uh, independent power producer system, I think this is the norm. Uh, The way that the former energy minister of Pakistan explained it to me makes a lot of sense. He said that our theory of change was we will provide plenty and cheap power to our industries and to our people in residential areas that will make our economy more productive so even if we are to repay those loans in in dollars with high rates of return at least we'll have the opportunity to earn more money become more competitive and then that will help us repay that 
Now, the problem in Pakistan is that because of other problems that I talked to you about, uh, the structural issues in the economy, that just hasn't happened. Pakistan's economy hasn't taken off. COVID didn't help either. But that productivity benefits from getting more power into the industry just hasn't materialized. So I think that's the fundamental risk that any country faces. And Pakistan, unfortunately, is an example of that. So if we if we can move to um, to politics, the um, foreign minister um, Bhutto Zardari, uh, I recently read an interview with him where he um, where he was asked about about anti-Muslim crackdowns in India, and he full on literally called India evil in 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 relation to to this to this issue. So I was wondering how the the kind of measures in China in in China's western region in Xinjiang against Muslim minorities there how that is seen in Pakistan and how how Pakistan also features in this kind of this kind of security thinking in China I mean this is a broad question and you you know this might not be you know your expertise but you know kind of which whichever kind of part of that issue um strikes you I was I was wondering how how you look at that. First of all, China enjoys a lot of public support in Pakistan. I was looking at Gallup World Poll data from 2006 to 2021. The approval rating of Chinese leadership has been consistently over 80%. And that compares to you know 20, low 20s uh, of the US. So the gap between approval for US versus China in Pakistan is huge. The Pakistanis have treaded very carefully this issue of um, Xinjiang. Uh, I think the former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was pushed on this several times I've seen in the over the last few years in the media. Um, you know, first of all, his position was, you know, the Chinese style is uh, very, uh, is not public. It's They're not like the Americans. They don't talk openly about these issues. So I have privately expressed my concerns to the Chinese leadership. The reaction in the West obviously was, yeah, yeah, right. Of course, you've done that. But in later months, toward the end of his political term in 2021, 2022, he talked about having sent his uh, his ambassador to Beijing on a, on a tour to Beijing, uh, to, to Xinjiang, and he came back with a report which said, all good, this is not a big issue, we should be fine with it. So I think he basically used these kinds of um, tactics to evade the question. But I think safe to say, any time a Pakistani leader comes on to Western media, they'll definitely push them for this. Uh, somehow, the Pakistani public doesn't seem to care as much. So a lot of people talk about this, you know, there's a lot of support for Kashmir and Indian actions in Kashmir over the last three to four years. Uh, as you said, the Pakistani government has been very strongly condemning those. But then when it comes to Xinjiang, which is just across the border on the other side, um, there is just not uh, as much conversation. So, I mean, there's lots of theories about that. Maybe there is a historical legacy, there is ethnic differences, uh, or the the rhetoric machine from both Pakistan and Chinese governments are so strong that that hasn't really uh, become a concern for the public. But somehow in the eyes of the Pakistani public, it's not it's a non-issue. So just to provide some context of what former Prime Minister Imran Khan said, here's the quotes with regards to Xinjiang. He said that the version of what is happening in Xinjiang is completely different to the version of what we hear from the Western media and Western governments because we have our very strong relationship with China and because we have a relationship based on trust. So we actually accept the Chinese version. What they say about their programs in Xinjiang, we accept it. That is the quote from Imran Khan. Again, has faced no backlash among the Pakistani people as well. It's a frustrating thing for Americans who, again, came under intense criticism from Pakistanis for the treatment of Muslims in Afghanistan, obviously in Guantanamo Bay, in Iraq and other places. And so they feel like there's an inconsistency <laughs> that's there. You, you know, uh, I, you, you, and the Pakistanis, to be fair, are no different than the Indonesians and any other Muslim-majority country. Not a single Muslim-majority country has sided with the West on this issue of Xinjiang. So the Pakistanis are by no means alone on that. Staying on the area of politics, Pakistan is in a very complicated part of the world, and its relationship with India and China is also extraordinarily complex. Let's talk about the relationship that China and Pakistan have vis-a-vis -vis India. So China and India's relationship is very tense. Pakistan and India are historic rivals. How does the India factor play into the dynamic in the China-Pakistan relationship? Oh, it's very central. Uh, I think so you have to understand that the worldview of the Pakistani uh, national security establishment is incredibly India-centric. It has been for many decades because India and Pakistan... Uh, 
you know, have been traditional rivals since 1947. India was the bigger power. And uh, the Pakistani mindset, especially in the early days, was that we are a smaller brother. And when there's an enmity between two brothers, that can sometimes be uh, very, very bad. So there was an existential threat that they felt um, that that ended up with the Pakistani military having a lot of resources, uh, including lots of support from the United States in the early days, uh, 1950s and 60s. And I think a pivotal moment in Pakistan-China relations came in the 1960s when India and China went to war. And I think that's when the uh, the Pakistan-China alliance found its uh, grounding, which was uh, very India-centric. Even today, I think that trend continues. Pakistan and China have very strong military ties. Um, I think the Chinese and Pakistani uh, air forces jointly built GF-17 and other uh, fighter aircrafts, uh, which some of which I believe are being sold to countries in Africa. So I think there's an industrial military complex issue that is um, very, very strong. And also recent in recent years, if you remember, Pakistan suffered a terrible insurgency uh, starting in 2004 and peaking at around 2013-14. And for Pakistan going to China and requesting these investments in 2013 and them coming through in big time with billions of dollars of investment were, quote-unquote, a lifeline for Pakistan. And it was a big endorsement on the long-term future of Pakistan as the as the narrative goes. So the relationship between Pakistan and China, yes, it is India-centric, but I think it has taken an altogether new dimension. It has moved from being strategic, military, uh, diplomatic, to something which is a more of an economic partnership. Uh, I think Pakistan and China also have strong trade relations. China is the third largest trading partner of Pakistan. So I think the relationship has strengthened, has become more um, broader. And I think it is it is going to stay this way as, again, the Pakistanis think of the Indo-Pacific strategy that the Americans have come in. They basically have, uh, have said that they don't see what uh, the U.S. or West has by way of interest in Pakistan anymore, especially since Afghanistan is no longer uh, top of mind in uh, in Washington or in Brussels. So I think this relationship is definitely India-centric, uh, but I don't see that there are any big challenges in this relationship, at least for the time being. I think this is just going to get stronger and stronger over time. Just one little quick footnote on the JF-17 that you meant to, mentioned. Uh, it's not just that they're selling these in Africa. Right now, Argentina is in the midst of considering a big purchase of jets. And the JF-17, which is manufactured in Pakistan, is my understanding, is the top contender right now. So this is an interesting relationship, as you mentioned, in terms of a defense cooperation that we may see JF-17s, which is really a counterpart to the F-16. Not a one-for-one, but very similar type of fighter jet to the F-16. So, Kobe, it's interesting to see how China-Pakistan relationships will extend even into the Americas. Yes, really interesting. Um, in in relation to that, um, Amara was wondering if if you could talk a little bit about the the role of the military in Pakistan. The, you know, I've I've seen um, you know kind of descriptions saying that that the government is essentially stitched together by what what this what this writer called the the, the uh, Pakistan's military intelligence apparatus. So I was wondering, like, kind of how central is is the military to Pakistan's running and to the Pakistani economy, and how how do they deal with China, and and what what is the relationship between the Pakistani military and and the Chinese? So for uh, nearly half of Pakistan's uh, time as an independent country, we've had direct military rule um, with martial law, uh, civilian presidents and other things. I think what has happened in the evolution of Pakistani democracy in the last 10 to 15 years is that they've moved away from direct intervention toward indirect intervention. So there's lots of talk about uh, the military and uh, intelligence agencies playing a role in forming coalitions, especially when there's hung parliament, as has been the case over the last few years and uh, they emerge and you know they emerge as like the kingmakers uh, remaining behind the scenes the pakistani military also has a big role to play in foreign policy of course defense and security and nuclear issues it is totally their domain but they have also got a pretty large footprint on the pakistani economy through the real estate sector in the industry and so on they're involved in a lot of things in pakistan uh, so you're right that uh, the military has uh, is a huge stakeholder 
in anything that Pakistan does and China is the China relationship is no different. Having said that, I think traditionally the Pakistani military has had very strong ties to the to the American security establishment. Uh, even as early, I mean, even as as late as the mid 2000s, uh, there was very strong cooperation around counterterrorism, Afghanistan. A lot of the Pakistani military leaders are trained in the United States. Um, their children have uh, been educated in the United States, live in the United States. So there's lots of these cultural <coughs> historic ties, military to military ties. But it is also true that um, after the Soviets left Afghanistan in the early 1990s, and the United States imposed uh, these Pressler amendments, which were amendments um, made in the uh, laws passed by the US Congress to limit security cooperation with Pakistan, uh, the Pakistanis had to go and look for alternatives. And China was definitely one of them. I think there's even now there's cooperation happening around drones, uh, missile systems, air defenses. So anything that the Pakistanis cannot get from the United States uh, or cannot afford to get from the United States, um, they will go and get it from China. And GF-17s is another good example of that. I think one area where they haven't quite uh, gotten the kind of support from China on the military front is perhaps helicopters. Um, and that's may- maybe a technological issue. So I think the, the ties of the between the, the, the Pakistani and the uh, Chinese militaries and the security establishments are pretty strong. But on the on the same at the same time, I think there is also seems to be some kind of a rapprochement happening with the United States. I mean, recently, I think just last month, there were big announcements around America providing a $450 million package on the uh, related to the maintenance and sustenance of the F-16s that the Pakistani bought from uh, the United States in the 1980s. Um, and, China, and India expressed a lot of concern about that. So I think there is some sort of a course correction perhaps happening uh, between Pakistan and the United States on the military front. But yes, the military is very central to all of this. And I think like the general Pakistani, civilian Pakistani elites, the military perhaps also feels a little conflicted where their historic cultural ties have been with the West, but now they're being pulled in this other direction as well. So it will be very interesting to see how they play that. I guess I'm surprised to hear you say that there's a rapprochement between the US and Pakistan because I mean, obviously, memories are very short in Washington because the sentiment in Washington was that the Pakistanis basically ripped off the Americans. In the global war on terror, there was this sense that I think the Pakistanis received almost $10 billion. But at the same time, there was a broad consensus within the U.S. national security community that the ISI, which is the Pakistani intelligence service, had been sheltering al-Qaeda, none other than Osama bin Laden himself in Abbottabad. And that really... That the sense was that Pakistan was lost to the United States. And now with Pakistan's close relationship with China, it's surprising to me that the Americans are, are trying to re-engage yet again, especially now that the U.S. relationship with India is so critical as a member of the Quad. So I, I'm, it's confusing to me what the United States thinks they're going to be able to do, uh, given the fact that they were not successful in the 2000s and the post-9-11. Maybe times have changed. Maybe they haven't. But at the same time, the fact that the Pakistanis have really said that they are all-weather friends, they're right up there with the Chinese, there's a dependency on the Chinese for debt, doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for the U.S. to maneuver in Pakistan. Is that, I guess, again, I'm, that's an amateur reading of it, but what's your take on that? No, Eric, I think reproachment is a relative term. <laughs> I think that the low, the low that uh, the relations had uh, hit recently, I think, was just unprecedented. You know, you have to you have to really understand this is quite interesting. Imran Khan, who was until April 2022, was the prime minister of Pakistan, in a public rally, you know, took out a piece of paper and said, look, this is a cipher, which is a diplomatic cable coded in some kind of a code word language saying this is a cipher from my ambassador in Washington saying that Donald Lou, I met with Donald Lou, who is number two in the State Department. And he said that Donald Lou was responsible for instituting a quote-unquote regime change in Pakistan. And then they gave out like a list of all the meetings that the then opposition, now the government of Pakistan, all these politicians had with American diplomats, as if meeting with American diplomats was a crime of some sort. So I think that is the kind of low that these relations hit very, very recently. So when I say reproachment, the fact that uh, both countries had a series of engagements in Islamabad and in Washington around 75 years of US-Pakistan relationships, uh, the Pakistani 
military chief is meeting with Lloyd Austin. Bhutto Zardari is meeting with uh, Tony Blinken. I think, relatively speaking, <laughs> I would that's say progress. This is a, that's a small re- progress, that's progress, progress, but it's progress. It's, re- it's re-engagement. But it is also very clear to the Pakistanis. I've, I've talked to people in Islamabad who've told me that we don't think that the U.S. Congress has the ability or the willingness or the support to give large sums of money or cash liquidity to Pakistan the way the Chinese have the ability to do. So basically their point was, yes, the soft side of things is great to have with the Americans. They have the best university system. We want to get our PhDs trained in Pakistan. They have the best research centers, etc., But when it comes to hard realities, big ticket projects, we have no hope that the U.S. can come through. But but that's not a fair criticism, though, because we gave $10 billion during the global war on terror that went into the pockets of the military industrial establishment there. So we did deliver big money to the Pakistanis. But I think if you were in the White House today, why would you throw good money after bad? So it's not that we're not capable, and I say we, who, what am I saying, we, the United States is not capable of, of delivering big money to Pakistan if it wanted to, but it's a black hole, as far as I think a lot of Americans are concerned. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the, 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 the history of the last 10 to 15 years, the war of terror, obviously, there's a lot of bad blood there. Um, I think the, the, fall of the, uh, the, the fall of the Afghan government uh, was just, you know, the amalgamation of, you know, that bad blood. But what I, what I mean by, you know, not having the ability to big the, bring the big money is, I think uh, those people are talk about uh, the economic side of things or economic cooperation. I'm talking about energy and highways and stuff like that. But it is also true that the Americans did uh, build really large reservoirs. I'm from a part of Punjab in Pakistan where the Americans, with the help of the World Bank, built a massive reservoir in the 1960s as part of the Indus Water Treaty. So it's it's you're right, it's a complicated relationship, and I, I understand where they're coming from. But I think the bottom line still is that um, you know the the, the 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 Pakistanis are definitely going to continue engaging with the Chinese, and they have still have high hopes that the second phase of the CPAC will bring more more and more investments. Um, just hasn't happened yet. So, you know, you, you mentioned Afghanistan, and obviously, you know, kind of now with, with the floods in Pakistan and the ongoing, you know, kind of like struggles for, for Afghanistan to, to become liquid and to get on their feet, um, I was wondering how, what role you, you foresee China playing in, in, in you know, in, in that region, um, and how much appetite China has for engagement with Afghanistan and how, how you know, Pakistan plays into that. In recent years, there's been talk of this concept of CPEC plus. I mean, it's just a rhetorical concept at this time, but you know, senior people have talked about this. As and I think the idea is that the China-Pakistan economic corridor should be, or could be, or must be, depending on who you are, extended into Afghanistan. Now, I know that in recent uh, weeks, on the sidelines of the SCO summit that took place in Central Asia, uh, there were side events happening where the conversation was around. You know what can we do to help the the Afghans rebuild their economy? There's lots of you know mineral deposits, uh, transition minerals, earth, rare earth metals and minerals in Afghanistan uh, that in theory have a lot of potential to to be extracted. So the the so the theory goes, you know what can what can Pakistan do or Qatar do to help the Chinese enter into Afghanistan? I think the practical reality is that there are there are strict sanctions on dealing with the Taliban government, and so I'm not privy to the details of those conversations, but I think. One of the challenges that they are, they were discussing was how to uh, work within the framework of this uh, or, or underneath the framework of the sanctions that have been put in place. And there is a lot of interest now in talking about the 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 PPP model or the public-private partnership model, um, where perhaps uh, the idea is that perhaps without dealing with the government of Afghanistan, they could still work with the Afghan private sector. I don't know how much on-the-ground development has actually taken place, but my friends who keep an eye on this stuff. Are, are skeptical that there will be major uh, developments anytime soon because of the security situation and the economic situation uh, continues to be so uncertain. And uh, of course, any good lender knows that they need to get their money back. And so the uh, the guarantees that the Afghan Taliban government might provide, um, I think even, uh, even after the sanctions, if the sanctions are lifted, I think you know, there will be a lot of skepticism around those. So there hasn't been much happening on that front on the ground, but I know behind the scenes there's conversations happening. Okay, Mar. so we've covered a lot of ground in the, in these past 45 minutes. And so let's try and just kind of bring a few things together. CPEC, what's your 
your forecast for this thing? Is it going to live up to the potential or is it going to stall under the fact that it just hasn't delivered on the economic potential as as many people thought? So first of all, what's your, your forecast for CPEC? The projects that are part of the phase one of CPEC, uh, ongoing projects in the sectors of energy and transportation in particular will continue. Other sectors like health and education, um, those kinds of sectors, I think, cooperation will continue. Um, It is yet to be seen if the Chinese will come through with that big $10 billion mainline one railway project. Uh, There are still active conversations going on about that. So basically phase one, which was public infrastructure provision, I think will continue slowly and projects will get completed. But I am a little more skeptical about phase two, where the idea was that all of this relocation of Chinese industry which is now happening toward the east, you know, Cambodia, Laos, that part of the world, that somehow those investments will start come coming into the special economic zones that the Pakistanis have built. I think I'm a little bit more skeptical that that uh, might happen. And the reason is that um, there is this mis- uh, misperception in Pakistan that just by, you know, building this nice big special economic zone, connecting it with the highway and giving energy connections will actually kickstart development and bring in investments. This is not how it works. And the Chinese, of course, will look at the whole world. They have dozens of special economic zone options. So why would they come to Pakistan? You know, do they have uh, good, uh, cheap inputs? Do they have the human capital? Do they have connectivity, safety, and so on? I think those ingredients are still missing. So my forecast for the CPAC is that the public infrastructure projects will continue and they will finish in the next few years. But uh, whether uh, big-scale Chinese private investments start to come into Pakistan is a lot more uncertain. And very quickly, what do you anticipate was going to happen in terms of that $30 billion debt? Your colleague Brad Parks has talked about how China is funneling lots of emergency loans, which oftentimes are off books and not transparent. Do you think there's going to be a major debt restructuring or there's going to be uh, these emergency loans that are provided quietly? What's going to happen on the loan front? So the Chinese, like the the Saudis and the Emiratis, have bet on the fact that they think Pakistan is solvent and that they're just facing a liquidity problem. This is also something Brad talks about frequently. I think that the this is how it has gone on. This is not a new thing. This has been going on since 1998. Uh, when we f- first saw like these big uh, emergency lending support from China coming into Pakistan. So I think this is just going to continue. I don't anticipate any major debt uh, restructuring taking place. I think the Pakistanis will continue to just manage, somehow be in survival mode and manage all these debts, and they're just juggling that. I think the big moment will be next fall when there is a new election in Pakistan. When that new government comes in place, hopefully with a clear mandate from the people of Pakistan to run the country for the next five years, I think that's when some major economic reforms might be on the table. But for the next year, I don't anticipate any big movements on the debt front in Pakistan. Okay. Well, hopefully we're going to have you back before next year and we can follow up with you on those predictions. Amar Malik is a senior research scientist at Aid Data, where he leads the Chinese Development Finance Program. And obviously, as you've heard, is a fantastic expert on China-Pakistan relations. Amar, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and where they can get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, Twitter is the the best way to do it. Um, My handle is at Malik Amar, and I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, where you can find me with Malik Amar, this exact same, same link on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. We'll put links to both the LinkedIn and Amar's Twitter handle in the show notes. Amar, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Kobus, my big takeaway from the discussion with Amar is that Pakistan is the too-big-to-fail country for China. It's just too important. $30 billion is an enormous amount of money. And let's put that in context to Africa, where we've been covering some of the debt issues. When you look at Kenya, the debt is around $6 billion. Ghana, it's $3.5 billion. Nigeria, it's $3.91 billion. So $30 billion is orders of magnitude larger than most of its other borrowers around the world. It's in the same range as what the Angolans and the Venezuelans have. So that's a top-tier borrower. And at the same time, just as the Angolans and the Venezuelans have, you know, not been able to repay those debts anywhere near 
what to what the Chinese wanted. It's that same that old story that when you know when you owe the bank a hundred dollars, it's your problem, and when you owe the bank a billion dollars, it's their problem. So this is a Chinese problem as much as it's a Pakistan problem, and that's what tells me that they will figure out a way to get through this debt issue. So if I were the Pakistanis, I don't. I wouldn't be too worried. And that was what is interesting about the Pakistani foreign minister's comments to the Nikkei Asia, which was like, yeah, we're not that stressed about the debt issue. So when Blinken is lecturing him on saying, you got to go to the Chinese and get debt relief, I don't think they're that worried because the Chinese are going to come through no matter what. They have to. Now, I, I guess I guess the question then becomes like, what are the terms of that coming through? You know, kind of because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that can develop there. There's always fine print, right? There is always fine print. But I agree with you in the sense that beyond the, this, the, the, the size of the numbers, I think there's another reason why the Chinese are kind of like locked in there, which is that, you know, so much of the underlying logic of the BRI is this, this faith that, you know, China was poor, now China is rich. Like using China, China, you know, kind of other countries are poor and using China's techniques, they can become rich. And so Pakistan is kind of exhibit A of that, considering how much, how much BRI investment has gone in there and how, how close the, 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 cooperation is you know in CPEC you know it's it's more than you would see in, in parts of our in, in most parts of Africa for example so you know so so in that sense there is no real space or also it would be politically difficult for for China to be like you know what it just isn't working we're just pulling out you know kind of because that that then raises so many doubts about the BRI itself and about the this kind of wider kind of coordinated development project that China has made the centerpiece of its global south engagement which is increasing the centerpiece of its global engagement you know so so as as china is facing more and more political pressure in the global north the bri becomes more and more important politically in, you know for for in the for all of its 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 international relations and there's no way to get around there's no way to get the bri around a massive bri failure in the pakistan in some by hook or by crook something bri wise has to work in pakistan because otherwise it devalues the entire operation I thought it was interesting what Amar said and how that the infrastructure has not generated the economic returns that many thought. And that got me thinking about Kenyan economist David Indy's comments. And he has long been a critic of massive infrastructure spending, specifically on projects like the Standard Gauge Railway and now the Nairobi Expressway. And he has said that you'll get a much better return on investment by investing in human capital, education, health, welfare, social services than you would by these big infrastructure projects. So it's interesting that you talked about, well, the Chinese model of once we were poor, now we are rich, infrastructure was a big part of that story, doesn't necessarily play out the same way all over the world. Pakistan is one country where massive investments in infrastructure have not paid off. And I wonder if we're going to see the same things in other parts of the world that have invested heavily in Chinese infrastructure, of course, Kenya being a prime example. I think so. And I think there's there's increasingly kind of new research coming out, drawing, like raising questions about how exactly how poor China was under Mao. And of course, China was super poor under Mao, like, you know, no mistake. But but there, there is, you know, I've seen recently seen kind of research quoted saying that there was actually a relatively stable, albeit much lower than than during the reform era, but a stable stable kind of rate of growth, you know, during the Mao Zedong era in China. So, so you know, kind of the idea that that China, you know, kind of under Mao Zedong was exactly the same as say Pakistan now or Africa now is maybe an oversimplification. And so some of some of the kind of growth narratives that come that come out of China in relation to the BRI also then you know kind of perhaps need further attention. But you know, but but it is interesting also this this question of of David and Dee's point is I mean wasn't that was what the West was supposed to be doing? Weren't they supposed to be investing in in you know kind of human capacity and you know kind of and education and so on and and that that didn't seem to have that kind of developmental impact unless what we're talking about is BRI levels of massive investment in, into these sectors which I think is kind of unprecedented anywhere and so you know kind of so, so then we would have to kind of like see about see what we actually mean in terms of, of that investment. But you couldn't do a massive investment in that kind of, inf uh, you know, that social infrastructure, if you will, or the intellectual capital, simply because the systems can't handle that kind of money coming in that fast, right? And, and it, process it, it without it, massive corruption kind of taking hold. 
that that's the one problem and the other problem is how do you step into a country and just reform its entire education system you know kind of you would have like in the first place you would need to retrain teachers massively you know and um and, and so, so 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 like what that would mean logistically like what that kind of investment would look like logistically is is, is difficult to say well i guess maybe what what david and Dee's talking about is like what we have here in vietnam where you've got 99 or 98 percent literacy You've got much higher rates of literacy among girls than you do in other developing countries. So that investment, you know, Vietnam falls down in many other places. But I think that may be what he's talking about is, again, investing in health infrastructure and things like that. Uh, it's, it's hard to tell. But then, you know, on, on top of that comes comes political will because because for example Zimbabwe has has quite high literacy levels. Like Zimbabwe has Zimbabwe's public education system is was in lots of ways much more successful than South Africa's, to the extent that, that half of the NGO sector in Johannesburg is now run by expat Zimbabweans. And uh, you know, so so but but you know, kind of there, there's such a there's such a kind of stark political will problem in Zimbabwe and you know and, and unfortunately the Chinese are very complicit in that problem. And so, you know, so 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 even if one has this, this a highly literate population, that does still doesn't necessarily translate into development. Well, getting back to Pakistan here, I just think that the geography is so important for the Chinese, and the gateway to the Gulf of Oman and into the Indian Ocean is just too important. And again, as we've talked about in our previous show about China's really souring ties with India, then Pakistan becomes even more important because of the relationship with India. So I, I don't think there's going to be any daylight that comes in between the China-Pakistan relationship. When they say they are all weather friends, I think we should take them at their word on that. Remember when the new government came into power, the foreign minister's first overseas visit was to Beijing. So that is always a symbolic statement of where they go first. And, and I think that speaks volumes to where we are right now. So if the U.S. ever thinks that they're going to be able to pull Pakistan back from China in any way and somehow re-engage them, to reorient them back to the U.S., I think that's just folly, wishful thinking. That's not going to happen. And I think especially now as the Chinese get more involved in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, again, if you do not know where Gawadar is, go look it up on a map. It is right there across from Dubai. I mean, the location is just perfect for them. So that explains a little bit why CPEC is so important, and they're going to stick with it. It may not be the $60, $70 billion thing, the full thing, but they're going to stick with it is my guess. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, you know, like in, in interviews with the Pakistani foreign minister, they were he was he was referring to this this kind of he was he was basically outlining uh, you know kind of their their view of what what a kind of a prosperous future could look like, and that included included better relations with India, possibly maybe in the future, but but then also um, a more you know a more developed uh, Afghanistan, a more developed Central Asia, and and a settled Iran, all with all with with Pakistan kind of in the center of it, and presumably, I mean, he didn't say it explicitly, but presumably with with a very very close relationship with China and China providing a whole lot of of, of the kind of development finance to make all of that happen. So you know, I mean, it's it's difficult to to say that that will happen soon or ever, but you know, but but it's it's very interesting to to hear kind of Pakistani officials kind of articulating it in that way. Well, it's funny that. Uh Prime, the foreign minister, Bhutto Zadare, is uh, the son of former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, who was assassinated. And just a little personal anecdote, uh, Benazir Bhutto was one of the first heads of state that I ever interviewed as a young journalist. So when she wow. came to, to Beijing in 1995 for the UN Women's Conference, I was a very young reporter for the Associated Press and spent 15 minutes with uh, Benazir Bhutto, the prime minister. So that's my little... Uh, my little comment, my little anecdote of uh, connection to the Bhutto family. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, I was shaking like a leaf at 25 years old interviewing the, uh, a prime minister, but uh, it was a lot of good fun. So it was fun for me just to see the Bhutto name back up in there. I know it's a very controversial family name. People love them or hate them, but uh, it was exciting for me as a 25-year-old journalist to, to interview a prime minister. So little personal anecdote there to end our show. Kobus, thank you so much. Uh, listen, everybody, if you want to follow what we are doing and you want to read 
the same things that uh, all the folks that we interview, Amar, you know, is, he reads our, news, our newsletter every day and subscribes to our site. The Aid Data team gets all of this information. We would love to have you part of our reader community. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. You can get it free for 30 days. We have a newsletter that drops every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern time, but you get full access to the website. Also, we've invested in a new transcription service. So the transcripts of the podcast now are just top notch. They are fantastic. And I'm just so excited about this because a lot of people were asking us for transcripts. We used an artificial intelligence service and Cobus, it sounded, it, I hate to say this, but it sounded like somebody was drunk writing. You know when you're drunk and you will write down some great idea that you think is amazing and you're a little tipsy and then the next day you look at it and you go, what the heck did I write? <laughs> That's kind of what the AI looked like in our previous transcripts. My apologies. But now we have perfect, amazing transcripts. So that is only available to subscribers. It's only $15 a month. Go to China Af- chinaglobalsouth.com. I almost I can't I keep saying China Africa Cobus. <laughs> Actually, the truth is you can still go to chinaafricaproject.com or chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe and you'll get all of the information to sign up for our service. We would love to have you join our community. And we also appreciate it. We are a team of eight editors in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and every subscriber helps to keep us independent. So thank you so much. Let's leave the conversation there. Cobus and I will be back again next week, both for our China Global South podcast and our China in Africa podcast on the other feed. If you're not subscribing to both, we highly recommend that you go and check it out. So for Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project. And share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com. <laughs>